Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to Hannah and Eric Go Birding. We're a couple of bird brains looking for adventure and some birds. I'm Hannah. And I'm Eric. And we started this podcast to share our adventures with you and talk about random thoughts and other birding topics. Just a couple of disclaimers, we're not experts, and if we discuss any controversial material, we hope you keep an open mind, but also remember that what we discuss is our own opinions. We hope you've had a great couple of summer weeks. Um, obviously, we haven't been living in the South long because we still haven't figured out how to get a full day of birding in without overheating. Yeah, seriously. Um, so in this week's episode, we will be talking about our most recent trip, which was to Jacksonville, Florida, and also some citizen science. Yeah. Uh, so Hannah, do you have any uh, birding news for the week? Uh, just a couple of things. We're getting a few more Facebook friends and listeners so thank you all that helped rep us throughout your friend group um we really appreciate it you know the more followers we have the more friends that we add on facebook the more we're encouraged to keep doing this um so please continue to do that so we can keep sitting here talking about birds so other things in the birding world did you see about that common merganser in michigan that had 50 babies trailing her yeah i saw the picture on facebook it's pretty cool um if you didn't read the article just summarize it real quick uh ken kaufman he commented in the article that ducks will often lay their eggs in duck nests of other ducks in the same species um he calls it an insurance policy so if for some reason her nest fails she had some babies in another nest that will likely survive so it works out in her favor she gets her genetic material passed on um even if her nest fails Kind of seems like the opposite of uh, what coots do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he also did state that she likely picked up a couple of chicks along the way that were separated from their mothers because realistically she can only um, incubate about 20 eggs at a time. And in the picture she had 50 and then it was recorded the next uh, couple days afterwards that she had 76 with her. So tons of little babies. Could you imagine trying to sit on like 50 eggs? Could you imagine trying to hurt all those little chicks? <laughs> That's ridiculous. Especially in the straight line that she had in the picture. That's amazing. Yeah. Better than any kindergarten teacher. <laughs> um, so lastly, there were a few cool birds that have landed since our most recent podcast. Um, there was a Zenaida, Zenaida dove. Zenaida, maybe? Maybe. Uh, that was seen in Miami-Dade by a bunch of people. And this is a Code 5 bird. Uh, also, there was a young California condor, which was spotted in Laramie, Wyoming, um, which is pretty cool, and that is considered a first record for this time period, since they were um, endangered, and I don't even know if they were listed as extinct, but they were they were severely endangered for a long time, and so now they're starting to improve after a lot of work done by um, some great scientists. Um, there was a crested caracara that was spotted in South Dakota. This is the state's second listing of, or sighting of that bird. And also a limpkin was seen in Alabama, which just goes to prove my point that they're heading over Texas to eat their apple snails, which I've been saying they're going to do. Yeah, and those things are monsters over there. Those apple snails, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Be a whole meal right there. Yeah, so real, real quick on what uh, the Code 5 for the Zenaida Dove means. So um, ABA has a... Uh, American Birding Association. Yeah, American Birding Association has designated uh, codes for all the birds, uh, for every bird species. Uh, code 1s and 2s are regular birds. Uh, they're not rare. Pretty much can know you're going to go see a uh, Code 1 or a Code 2 every time you go out. Um, things like uh, red winged blackbird and stuff like that would probably be a code one, and then yeah. maybe like a blue jay for like code two, since you don't see a lot of them at a time. I guess probably just speculating. Yeah. So um, 
there's there's not a lot of difference between one ones and twos, just uh, numbers of individuals uh, typically. Um, code three means that it's uh, it's rare. It occurs in low numbers, but is expected annually within the ABA area. Which uh, the ABA area, um, for those of you that don't uh, don't remember, is uh, the U.S. including uh, Canada, Alaska, and as of this year, Hawaii. Yeah, Hawaii. So um, then, moving on to code four, uh, species is called casual. It's not recorded every year, but there's been at least six records. And then code five, which is what the Zenaida dove is, it's uh, an ultra rare. It's uh, five or fewer sightings ever and uh, less than three within the last 30 years. And there's also the elusive uh, code six birds, uh, (coughs) things like uh, ivory-billed woodpecker, which uh, I think is a code five. We'll find it. Yeah, we're going to find it someday. So, um, on to business. Uh, this last weekend, we decided to take a little trip down to northeast, the northeast coast of Florida to a place that had a few possible lifers for us. Yeah, lifers. Th- birds that we haven't seen in our lifetime. Yeah, so um, this time we were looking for the great back bl- black <laughs> back gull. Yeah. Man, that's a hard one to say. It's a tongue twister. Um, and I had heard a lot about a turn colony that was there that was pretty amazing. So we went, got off work on Friday and headed straight to Jacksonville so we could go check it out. Um, we checked into the hotel whose water had been shut off for repairs. <laughs> so we headed to find a bathroom somewhere because it was about a three-hour drive and we both had to pee. Oh, yeah. Um, which seems to be the, the story of that day. <laughs> and we ended up at Atlantic Beach Brewing Company, which is a great little spot for some locally crafted beer out in Jacksonville. Yeah, their slogan is aggressively pursuing craft. That's that's something that I like. I can get behind that. <laughs> Coincidentally, the restaurant that had been recommended to me was less than a thousand feet from the brewery, Colhane's Colhane's Irish Pub, and that place is legit Irish. The hostess was Irish. The owners were Irish. They had live Irish bands come. They even had harp on tap, which is pretty exciting for me. Uh, it was our kind of place. We love little pubs like that. Um, I almost feel like we were following Guy Fieri around, though, because we keep going to restaurants that are on diners, drive-ins, and dives, but I, I guess the guy has some pretty good taste. Yeah, I guess so. Even though he's got that crazy hair. <laughs> <laughs> I had that hair in middle school. Yeah. Um, so after refueling, uh, we tried to do a little bit of evening birding. Uh, didn't check the times very well, so uh, all the parks we went to were closed. Uh, Huguenot Park was closed that evening uh, by the time we got there. But we did drive around uh, the loop right out front of Fort George Island Cultural State Park. Uh, It was about a five-mile drive around the little peninsula overlooking some coastal wetlands. Yeah, there were grassy wetlands to the right, plantation-style mansions to the left. It was... It was pleasant. Yeah, it was a pretty good spot to get off, to cross off some uh, forest birds for the county. Got uh, titmouse, chickadee, white-eyed vireo. We even had a couple peacocks. The road was pretty rough, though. Yeah, which wasn't great because remember, as I said, that was the day of having to pee. So every pothole felt it in my bladder, <laughs> and I feel like Eric was was hitting the potholes pretty aggressively. I was going kind of slow, but uh, we didn't do a lot of dilly dallying on that drive. Uh, so we. Had an early morning appointment with some more birds. So Saturday morning, um, I couldn't sleep. It was either because I was so excited to go birding um, or, you know, who knows what. Um, I woke up at about 4 a.m., waited for Eric's alarm to go off to wake him up at 5 so we could get rolling for the day. Yeah, and our first stop had to be Dunkin' Donuts because 
the coffee at the hotel was basically warm brown water. Yeah, I don't know how you taste brown, but it, it was. definitely tasted brown. <laughs> but uh, after a short pit stop, we made our way to um, Huguenot Memorial Park, uh, our destination from the evening before that was closed. But uh, we At least we knew how to drive there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's on the northeast side of Jacksonville. Uh, we arrived at about 6.15, so the sun was just barely coming up. It gave us time to defog our binoculars and camera lenses before uh, before the birds became active. And for those of you not in the south, uh, because of the humidity, you have to do that. You have to defog your lenses. Otherwise, you spend the first 15 birds or so cursing yourself and wiping your lenses constantly because they keep defogging up and you have to defog. Um, but that defog time did give us a chance to orient ourselves to the park. Um, and I don't know about you, but it is so hard for me to understand a park fully from a map and a website. I really just have to see it and drive around it to understand what's going on. Oh, I think I do pretty well looking at the map, figuring out, but the problem is I don't usually look at the map until we're there and already frustrated. So it doesn't, (laughs) doesn't help a lot. Uh, so right at sunrise, we followed the signs to the, the non four wheel drive spots, um, as we were taking the trip in the adventure mini Cooper, which has low clearance and only front wheel drive. So we didn't want to get stuck. And it took us a little inland, uh, lake that had a few fishermen and a few laughing goals, but not much else. Yeah. The area wasn't nearly as productive as we had hoped it was. So, um, thought we'd be a little bit more daring and follow the signs to the four wheel drive area. Which the four-wheel drive area just turned out to be hard-packed sand on a well-worn path. So the Adventure Mini Cooper had not a problem getting through any of that. She does it again. (laughs) Yeah, so we made it out to the um, for a quick stop by the North Jetty of the St. Johns River. And we were pleasantly surprised by the North Jetty. Um, At first, Eric just stood on the top of the rocks, and we didn't see much at first. Except for that random lady doing yoga and filming herself while doing it out there on a flat rock. I was, I was behind her, so if you ever see this lady's video on YouTube or something, I'm, I'm the guy behind her with binoculars trying to see some birds. Yeah, not creeping. Yeah, not creeping at all. <laughs> um, the tide started coming really fast, so we moved the car up the beach uh, because we didn't want to get stuck, and we went to the other side of the jetty for another try. And there was a pretty wide, short beach on the other side that had royal turns and laughing goals and a few ruddy turnstones. Then all of a sudden, there was a flash of shorebird shot right before the sand and right before our eyes, which I'm sure many of you have experienced this before. And it went down to the water, and it was basically gone at that point. But my first impression of the bird was that it was a red knot, which is a lifer. Yeah, it was, it was pretty exciting. I got a pretty good look at the wing pattern and the overall overall size. It made me think uh, red knot also. Hannah and I were both in agreement that that's uh, pretty much what we saw. Definitely definitely a red knot. Not an unusual bird for the area, but uh, but a lifer. It was uh, super exciting because we weren't really... It wasn't even on our radar. We weren't anticipating that bird. But uh, it, After the excitement died on that, we went to go look for some other lifers. Yeah. Yeah, some of the things that we're actually hunting for, like the, the, the elusive reddish egret we've been after for a while and the great black bag goal. So that was pretty exciting. Um, but we got back in the Adventure Mini, hashtag Adventure Mini, and we were so glad we moved it up the beach because one of the paddle boarders that was there right off the jetty was uh, driving an FJ Cruiser that was getting swallowed by the ocean right then, um, which looked... 
pretty pretty scary. And my car, my adventure mini is lightweight, so we, I feel like we could have pushed it out maybe. But that FJ Cruiser, those things are heavy. Yeah, if that guy was by himself, I don't I don't think he's getting it out by himself. Yeah. Um. So we cruised down the beach a little bit more. We saw some more turnstones, laughing goals, and a single ring build goal that just kind of stood there and watched us drive past. And then off in the distance, we heard it. Thousands and thousands of royal turns. They were darkening the sky. It was like goals at a landfill. It was it was insane. I took a recording with my phone. Um, that was what you heard in the intro for this episode. Uh, but that doesn't do any justice. The sound was just deafening. It was so loud. I, I guess deafening is the best word. We uh, couldn't hear ourselves think. We almost had to yell to be able to talk back and forth to each other. Just over the sound of all the young baking for food, the adults looking for their babies. It was it was loud. Um, because of this giant colony of royal terns at Huguenot Memorial Park, um, a portion of it has been designated as a critical wildlife area by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. So a lot of the nesting location is closed off to protect nesting birds, which didn't really um, inhibit us at all. Like we we saw them pretty close. Oh yeah, we were well, well behind well behind their exclusion zone, but they're 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 landing outside of the exclusion zone and kind of waddling all around all over the place. <laughs> But I honestly don't know why you'd want to get any closer than anywhere near those ropes. That's the smell that was coming off them. Those birds have definitely not been able to find a proper toilet. Um, fortunately, it wasn't on us. <laughs> yeah. Um, this, Surprisingly. <laughs> yeah. I, have a, I have a habit of that happening. Um, so this was probably one of the coolest places I think I've ever been. I read... Lots of books on albatross when I was younger, and thinking about those islands that the albatross nest on, you know, I, I've never been to one of those locations, but I feel like this was pretty similar. Um, it, it was just super cool to see that many young in a given place, and in varying stages of age, too. There were some little babies, some some older juveniles. Oh, yeah, there were some that looked like they are right about to start flying. There still were some, begging for food. <laughs> yeah, still begging for food, even though they almost fully developed. And then, then there was, of course, the nestlings that were just barely Adorable. hatched. Uh, it was really neat to see these birds up close and watch the interactions between the adults and the babies. Yeah, and and watch, watching them, the little fledglings waddle over them. They they didn't didn't even care that we were there. The parents would land within feet of us and then just start waddling over as they as they chirp and try to find their babies. There was even an, one other photographer out there, and he had a monster lens. It was definitely expensive, <laughs> <laughs> but um, he he was out there and trying to take with his monster lens take take photos of the parents that were landing like five feet from him so it was i thought that was comical seeing someone with such a large lens birds (laughs) landing so close yeah um after we got our fill of baby birds we headed up to little talbot island state park to find that stinking reddishy grit and guess what what we found it. oh man yeah so the individual we found was it was an immature white morph so basically it looked like a dark billed great egret but yeah, anticlimactic, I know. But Eric just had to see it. Yeah, didn't didn't have it on my Florida list, so we needed to find it. So um, the reason we went to these the, these two uh, these areas in particular was uh, because of my favorite website, eBird.org. It's a citizen science project used by birders to document and share sightings of birds from all across the whole world. The website also keeps track of each of the individual's user data that you've uploaded. So th- making keeping track of lists 
over the years is super easy. And within, within seconds, you can find out how many birds you have within any county, state, or country. And eBird has also made finding elusive birds easy, basically. <laughs> well, kind of, I guess. I mean, we, how many times did it take us to find it, a red sheep? It, it took us a while to get the red sheep. It's a lot easier than the old way of calling or the phone tree. Yeah, but I was able to see that I didn't have red sheep on my list. And so I brought up the eBird map um, of recent sightings of red sheep. And we saw a grouping over uh, by Huguenot Park and Little, Little Talbot Island State Park. And uh, that gave us an idea that we should just head on over there and see if we can find them. Yeah, so looking into citizen science, because what we're talking about now with eBird is citizen science project. The boring definition is that it's a collection and analysis of data relating to the natural world by members of the general public. And typically that's done as part of a collaborative effort with professional scientists. I like to think of it as contributing data about the natural world towards the greater good, but you don't have to have all the degrees to do it. Yeah, and I really love citizen science projects. My, my favorite, of course, is eBird, but I also like iNaturalist, um, both of which the general public can post sightings of species, uh, pictures, or just uh, just notes of seeing them. And then uh, it contributes to the greater body of knowledge on any number of families. Um, iNaturalist can do plants, animals, insects, everything. eBirds, just birds, but you can also do birds on iNaturalist. Yeah. And there's some pretty common things that people do that they might not realize is contributing to citizen science, such as Nest Watch and Project Feeder Watch. These things are super powerful and important programs that lots of people do uh, to help add to the scientific knowledge. Yeah, and I think um, a, a fantastic thing about a project like iNaturalist is it gives it gives me another reason, it gives everyone another reason to get outside, walk some trails, or even just wander around like their apartment complex or their backyard. Because I know I always have my phone with me, and it has a digital camera on it, so I can just snap a snap a picture of a spider or a leaf that I'm not familiar with, and post it post the geotagged picture on iNaturalist and get some help identifying it. And experts. Or amateurs or whoever from all around the world can give their input of what they think that individual is. So I do have a possible concern that I want to bring up for my naturalist and other citizen science projects. Um, and that's that the general public is participating in these projects. And so that I feel might potentially harm the research integrity. Um, for example, I could go to iNaturalist right now and make some ridiculous claims on there and identifications and then create a second account to agree with those bogus claims to make them research-grade observations. Of course, I'm not the kind of person that wants to watch the world burn, but there's little regulation, so bad data could be introduced, which might cause an overall lower quality of information. For example, I might go on there with a old picture of an ivory-billed woodpecker, you know, that I've updated so it looks newer, <laughs> and uh, get somebody, to get my fake account, my backup account, to say, yeah, ivory-billed woodpecker, and so it might be in my backyard, and, and that just adds to it. Of course, that's an extreme example, but... It's still a possibility. Well, it's, that's a good point. But I think with the number of contributors on any of these sites, eBird or iNaturalist, and the willingness they are to call people out on wrong information, I, th I think that really mitigates that bad data having an impact on the overall integrity of the, of the program or of the, um, 
of the project. Yeah, and I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I just want to play devil's advocate because I love doing that, you know. Um, so, like, what if an industry or a private organization uses these bad data or these bad observations to show a higher abundance of something that's that's not very common, like northern spotted owl in Oregon, you know? Um, what if somebody goes on there and says, like, posts them all over the place and says, oh, my gosh, there's hundreds of spotted owls. What are we worrying about? And trying to use that. And it says that they're recovering a lot better than they actually are. Yeah, I, I think that's possible, but that's that's also there's also uh, like thoroughly vetted scientific projects out there that are done by people not of the general public, um, and the citizen science projects can help be a huge contributor to the general scientific um, body of knowledge. But they don't need to be; it doesn't need to be the be all end all for all research projects. I mean, I'm not like one of those highfalutin scientists, but I can still contribute to citizen science and make feel like I'm making an impact by doing my best to make the best observations and post them to these projects. That's a good point. And uh, did we also mention that there are like hundreds of other citizen science projects that you can get involved with and whether that's from the comfort of your own home in your own laptop, just sitting here watching the TV um, on Zooniverse or maybe doing observation uh, like, contributing information to the observations on iNaturalist, which is fun to do Saturday morning with a cup of coffee and bird online. Um, Or you can get highly involved with these things, like participating in a BioBlitz, which there's BioBlitzes going on all over the place, and they're a lot of fun to participate in. And contributing that data to projects like iNaturalist. And, you know, there's projects that you can contribute to that range from things like ancient Egypt scroll translation, which I was really bad at when I tried that, um, (laughs) to spotting whales during like a whale watch, or even there's some to help, uh, map asteroids, which I think would be pretty interesting that you might like. There's something that anyone can have an interest in and contribute to the greater good. And if you're just sitting there doing it while you're drinking coffee, you know, it's not that big a commitment. Yeah, you're not, it's not taking a big chunk out of your day. No, but it, it can really impact somebody's research and, and help them further what they're trying to do. Yeah, but I can't believe that we've made it, talked about <laughs> citizen science for this long and not mentioned the longest running citizen science project out there. The Christmas Bird Count it takes place every year at the end of December um, end of December, beginning of January, and people from all around the world have been participating for decades. It's uh, some of the locations have data of wintering birds all the way back to the early 1900s. It's expansive, and you you can usually look up online, find your circle. That's fi- find a handful of circles in pretty much every city, especially especially within the United States. Pretty much every cir- city has a couple at least. Um, originally naturalists would go out on Christmas day and shoot as many birds as they could. But, uh, in 1900, Frank Chapman, uh, proposed that instead of shooting all the birds and counting them, you should just go out and just count them. But, uh, I think, I think we'll discuss this further when we get, uh, get a little closer to, uh, the Christmas time. Yeah. Get everybody pumped up about it. Yeah. I think we've probably talked about, uh. Citizen science and Christmas bird counts uh, enough, probably. What? No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, thank you guys for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something, maybe. Um, So please, 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 please 
rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Music, and anywhere else you listen to us. If you'd like to connect with us, please follow us at Hannah Goes Birding on Instagram, on our Facebook page, Hannah and Eric Go Birding, or email us at Hannah and Eric Go Birding at gmail.com. Yeah, I know. It's got a lot of words in it. <laughs> That's what we went with. Uh, so tell us what you hated and what you liked, um, what you'd like us to talk about. You know, if, if there's a specific topic that you'd like us to look into, we'd be happy to do that. Uh, if you'd like us to stop talking about something, we'll consider your request. <laughs> uh, we're working on some bumper stickers, maybe, or some other swag. So if you connect with us, maybe you'd be in the, the first line of people to get some of that stuff. So keep an eye out and share with your friends and help us build a following. Um, we're going to include some of these things that we talked about today in our show notes, like our eBird list from uh, the different parks we went to last weekend, as well as some citizen science projects that you can get to be a part of and help contribute to. So there's nothing else, Eric? No, that's, I think that's it. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. You know, I heard about this grasshopper sparrow we should go find in Georgia this weekend. Hmm. Georgia, you say? Yeah, Georgia. Well, I guess we're going to go north. Adventure money.